Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Michael Sabom. Dr. Sabom is a cardiologist and researcher in near-death experiences. He is a founding member of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and author of numerous peer-reviewed articles on near-death experiences. He's also written two books, with a third on the way, I believe, uh, Light and Death, One Doctor's Fascinating Account of Near-Death Experiences, 1998, and Recollections of Death, A Medical Investigation, 1982. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Sabon. Thank you. All right, Ken, uh, you have seen a movie recently, as have a number of our listeners, I'm sure, and that movie has prompted uh, discussion around a topic that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, tell us what that movie is and the occasion for bringing Dr. Sabom on the podcast with us. Yeah, Joe, uh, a recent film came out entitled After Death, and uh, we interviewed the producer, and uh, I was given an opportunity to see it even before it came out. And of course, I immediately recognized Dr. Sabom. He, uh, we interviewed him years ago. Um, I'm not sure what the name of that program was, but it goes It might back have been Creation Update. It may have been Creation Update. But uh, I wrote a blog article about the film and about the phenomenon of near-death experiences. And I've always considered Dr. Sabom to be the, the most careful in his analysis of this phenomenon. And so I thought, let's see if we can get him back on the program. So Dr. Sabom, it's a pleasure to talk with you again. Thank you very much. Well, Joe, let's uh, let's start with some questions here. Uh, Dr. Sabob, I wonder if you would just kind of describe a near-death experience and maybe include part of that. Uh, it's association, let's say, to, to clinical death, and biological death, and and I'm going to define clinical death as reversible. Biological death would be irreversible. Do you agree with that? And how would that relate to a near-death experience? Well, that's uh, certainly a good way to start. Uh, I think the two terms need to be distinctly uh, defined and separated from one another. I think what you've said was clinical death is reversible. Uh, that's correct. And that is when I consider the near-death experience to occur. Biological death is final, irreversible, and I do not think that these are trips to the afterlife, the near-death experience. So I think that distinction is very, very important. As far as what the near-death experience itself is, uh, that definition or whatever you want to call it, description, uh, has undergone many variations over the years. Uh, the most recent one that I like, that I agree with, was by Dr. Bruce Grayson, uh, recently said, quote, near-death experiences are intensely vivid and often life-transforming experiences, many of which occur under extreme physiological conditions, such as trauma, ceasing of brain activity, deep general anesthesia, or cardiac arrest in which no awareness or sensory experiences of any kind should be possible according to the 
prevailing views in neuroscience. Now, you may notice a couple of phrases that he used, which uh, define a real distinct uh, important point. He says they are under extreme physiological conditions. He did not use the term near death because in the list of things that he listed here, one was deep general anesthesia. So I do not consider general anesthesia a near-death condition. And so I, I, I agree with uh, Grayson there that extreme physiologic condition is what he called it, not a near-death experience. In fact, in my first book, when I had experiences, near-death experiences under general anesthesia, I separated that out into a separate chapter, did not include them in the overall book, and I really didn't know what to do with those because the person was unconscious, maybe because of the uh, crisis event they were having during the time of the experience or the general anesthesia. I could not tell which. So to keep it safe, I just considered them separately from the rest. Very Let me, sorry, for the sake of our listeners, uh, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have been in a hospital. Perhaps many of us have uh, undergone anesthesia. What is meant by general anesthesia? What happens there? Well, general anesthesia is where you're supposed to be totally out. Uh, local anesthesia is where you get an injection, say, to sew up a minor uh, laceration or whatever. And there is such a thing called anesthesia awareness under general anesthesia, which some people have attributed the near-death experience to when it occurs with general anesthesia. And, but the, the characteristics of anesthesia awareness is, are quite different from the near-death experience itself. In fact, there's a, a recent article, uh, a summary of 2,000 cases of patients who underwent general anesthesia looking for uh, how often anesthesia awareness occurs. It usually occurs when the anesthesia is not adequate and it, the, uh, the patient is not totally out. But the, it, they had a few cases of that, but they had one instance of a person stating that they felt like they floated up out of their body and could, they could watch the operation from above. Sounded to me like that was an out-of-body autoscopic uh, near-death experience, although I would not want to say that the person was near death at the time they had it. They were just under general anesthesia. Now, if I recall, Dr. Sabom, you view these experiences as being part of the death dying process. That is, um, this is kind of in the early stages of, of death. I, I remember reading Raymond Moody's book back in the mid seventies, uh, life after life. And he describes maybe what we would call a composite view where uh, typically a person uh, sees themselves raising above their body an OBE, an out-of-body experience, maybe, maybe seeing the doctor uh, examining them. And, and then this experience is, is complicated by maybe uh, a transition into a, a dark tunnel, seeing a light, and there's all kinds of uh, elements that go with this, but you see this as part of the dying process. 
you don't see it as actually experiencing uh, a heavenly state. Is, is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And I, uh, I would go on to add that many of the people who experience these uh, events do interpret them as after-death visualizations. And we can get into this later, uh, but I think that that's a before-death experience, and it's in the spiritual realm. I do believe that it's an experience of the spiritual realm, but it's a before-death experience, not an after-death experience. So then we come down to, okay, when's the moment of death? That also is something we'll get into later, but that's a very controversial issue, not just in the near-death field, but in medical field also. Uh, and what you were describing before, uh, the experiences I found in Recollections of Death, which were uh, actually I started right, or started I started on that study months after that book came out because I was extremely skeptical of what Moody had written, and I was out to disprove what he had written. Uh, and as it turned out, after five years of study and uh, the investigation, I found that these experiences were very close to what Moody had reported, although he did not do it in a scientific format. So that's the purpose, or that was the purpose of recollection of death. And what I found was that the near-death experience was reported, as stated before, as a vivid, vividly real experience of three types. The first type, 30% of the time, was what I termed autoscopic, which is a word meaning self-visualization, near-death experience with apparent visualization of one's body from a position of height. The second type in 54% of, of the patients was a transcendental near-death experience with apparent passage of consciousness into a foreign region or dimension, as you had mentioned, through a tunnel, seeing a light at times meeting deceased relatives and friends at some point told it is not their time to be there and that they must return. And then 16% of the experiences was a combined experience with both features of both types. So what I did was essentially confirm what Moody had, had written in a scientific way and then divided it up into three different types. Oh, that's very helpful. Let, let me ask you this question. Um, I'd like to know your thoughts about the effects of near-death experiences. I've been on the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Uh, I read a lot of their uh, introductory articles. Um, of course, there are people who say things like, and, and there are even uh, Christian uh, physicians who talk about hellish experiences, that talk about uh, the experience of being alone or maybe encountering uh, some kind of divine punishment. And there are also people who claim to have kind of a new age or Eastern mystical experience. Um, so I, I guess my question is, is, is this, what, what can you say to the common experience of, of how it affects people and do you agree with the uh, the uh, the IANDS articles that say people ex have differing kind of religious experiences? Okay, that's 
That's a big question. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very important to point out that uh, these experiences do have profound effect, life changes effects after they've had them. Uh, and I'll just run through a list of them. The ones I, I uh, listed in uh, Recollections of Death, although that was almost or over 40 years ago, and they're the same ones today. People have, after a near-death experience of any type, people of all religious backgrounds have greater self-confidence, heightened sense of purpose, reduced fear of death, heightened spirituality, greater care and compassion for others, diminished value of material possessions, and an enhanced appreciation for life. Those sound very good, and <laughs> they, they happen to everybody, whether they're Christian, non-Christian, New Age, or whatever. But that's a common after effect of the near-death experience. I, I found that in my study also, and that the sense of sacredness of life and an increased inner sense of God's presence was also uh, an after effect too. Uh, what has been controversial is mentioned uh, in some of the literature about an increase in belief in reincarnation. Mm. And I addressed that in my second study uh, and found that no, that's not true. The near-death experience does not increase belief in reincarnation. And I've actually gotten uh, many of the other uh, people who may believe in it state that it is a, an effect of who you mingle with and traffic with after you've had the experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to uh, badmouth IONS, which is the International Association of Near-Death Study, IONS, but they are a heavily universalist and at times new age type of organization. And many of the studies and many of the books have been written about studies of people who are members of IONS and they get re, reused in different studies, and they're the same people. And they meet with one another, they talk with one another, and it's the association with people with like beliefs that increases the belief in reincarnation, not the experience itself. Now, the other thing you mentioned was uh, the participation. Well, there's some indication that there's a what's called a... Uh, decreased participation in organized religion with an increase in spirituality beliefs. And so this is a, this quite frankly is, is a, to me, a problem as a Christian cardiologist. I believe the near-death experience encourages uh, a general revelation of God as written in Romans 2.15. The law of God is written on the hearts of all persons. So I believe that that's what's being communicated partly by this experience is a general revelation of a God, because they may not call it a Christian God. They may call it Buddha or whatever, or even a higher consciousness. But they do believe that they did uh, either encounter or their belief in a higher God figure uh, was universal. Fact is, in your blog, you wrote about A.J. Ayer, who yeah. said that he 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 uh, encountered. I think it was a master of the universe or something like that. But he he, as an atheist, would not admit 
that that was a God because he didn't want to interfere with his, his relationships with other atheists, which he highly valued. So he left it at that. But anyway, that's that's a general uh, uh, after effect uh, of these experiences. That's very helpful because uh, I I taught a, a, a philosophy course for about five years entitled Perspectives on Death and Dying, and we would cover near-death experiences. And I felt uh, in reading people like Raymond Moody, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Kenneth Ring, and Melvin Morse, that there was a, an increasing kind of Eastern mystical uh, perspective. And so uh, I appreciate your comments there because uh, there is the phenomenon and then there's the interpretation of what it means. Right. So that's that's yes. a very important element. Here's a here's another question. And, and then, Joe, I, I'm, I'd like you to jump in and ask a question or two as well. How common are near-death experiences? I think one article on the, the IAMS site said that in one study, it was almost one out of 10 people. Um, any any stats that you uh, have come to in terms of its uh, the commonality of this kind of experience? Well, certainly it's going to depend upon who's doing the study and the, the setting of the study itself. Uh, it's across the board. It's generally accepted about, about, uh, about 10 to 20% of people who are in a what's called a near-death crisis event will report some type of experience which resembles a near-death experience, 10 to 20%. Now, how do we tell what's not a near-death experience or what is a near-death experience? The generally accepted way of doing it now is using uh, Bruce, Brace, uh, Bruce Grayson's uh, scale uh, of, of evaluating the different elements of the experience. And if you reach the magic number of seven, it's a near-death experience, but less than seven, it's nothing. It, it's not nothing, but it's not qualified of near-death near experience by definition. But anyway, it's it, 10 to 20%, I think is a general uh, accepted incidence. Okay, Joe, questions? Yeah, I want to ask you, Dr. Sabom, what are the proposed explanations for NDEs? But in conjunction with that, I wonder if you might uh, describe for us the Pam Reynolds case, because that seems to be the big one. Uh, it happened some time ago now, but you've been doing this research for a long time, and uh, I think people would appreciate uh, your explanation and uh, your thoughts on that case. Okay, thank you. Uh Explanations, they run the whole gamut. Uh, and it's it's interesting in Recollections of Death written in 1982, it was published. Uh, the explanations I use there are still being used today. I will run through the list quickly. Semi-conscious state, conscious fabrication, subconscious fabrication, depersonalization, autoscopic hallucination, dreams, prior expectation, drug-induced delusions and hallucinations, endorphin release, temporal lobe seizure, altered states of consciousness, hypoxia and hypercarbia, that's uh, low oxygen, high carbon dioxide in the blood. All of those have been used, attempted uh, to explain 
the near-death experience. And as I explained in Recollections of Death, five decades ago, they all fail. Uh, well, you mentioned Pam Reynolds' case, uh, which I reported in uh, Light and Death. And that's a good question because Pam's case, which was reported in 1998 and Recollections of Death was written in 1982. She negates openly many of the explanations that I just said. For instance, she was constantly monitored during her uh, six-hour operation for a giant cerebral aneurysm. Uh, she was constantly monitored by an EEG, so she had no temporal lobe seizure. They continually monitored her blood, uh, blood oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Uh, and on and on and on, the, the woman had her eyes taped shut. Her ears were both plugged with earbuds. Uh, and they were emitting 95 decibel clicks in both ears several times a second. That's like a jackhammer. That's 95 decibels. It's very loud. It would have obstructed any type of physical hearing whatsoever. And she was under deep anesthesia. At one point, she, her, her body temperature was lowered to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and the, the head of the operating room table was raised and all the blood was drained out of her head. So at that point, I would say that she's fairly close to death. Although with the hypothermia, by the way, she did make it through and had a uh, extended life thereafter. But it's what, what all that monitoring was doing was answering some of the questions that they were using to explain the near-death experience. And Pam, in the middle of all that, had a, a three-part near-death experience. She floated up uh, when, as soon as the cranium was open to, to clip off her aneurysm, uh, and she viewed uh, the instruments that were being used, uh, the, uh, the table beside the operating room, uh, table that uh, held, held the instrument uh, cases, and there was a conversation between the surgeon and the cardiovascular surgeon who was inserting uh, the coronary uh, cardiac bypass machine uh, at that time. And she was under anesthesia and had all this uh, equipment on her. Uh, and she heard the conversation. And soon after she came to the next day, and I, I interviewed Carl Green, who was the assistant surgeon who was talking to her. Uh, she was telling him about what she had experienced. So it wasn't like somebody told her that. As soon as she came back conscious, she was able then to describe it. That was the out-of-body part. In the middle of the operation, she had a transcendental part of the experience, went down a tunnel, saw a light, meets, met several of her uh, deceased relatives. And at some point, she came back to her body when the surgery was over with. And she observed them cardioverting her back to normal rhythm because her heart had been stopped. So she had a very extensive experience, but the, the main thing that it did was answer some of the, many of the questions that other people had uh, that previously had been used to explain it with a mundane uh, in the body experience. So. 
that's that's why she's now considered to be probably probably the uh, most detailed and well documented case on record. Wow. Let, let me ask a, a follow up to Joe's question there. Um, obviously, uh, I talk with a lot of skeptical people. They're atheists, agnostics, skeptics. How, uh, in in looking at Pam Reynolds and other uh, NDEs, where th there has been this capacity to corroborate things that were outside their ability to see or hear, how strong do you think that is? And, and I guess I'm focusing on this. That appears to be very difficult to explain purely naturalistically. It is. It's inexplicable. Uh, for instance, since you brought it up, Gerald Worley, he's a very accomplished uh, German anesthesiologist, and he's written several skeptical books, one of them about the Pam Reynolds case. And I've, I've corresponded with him. He's a nice guy, but uh, his, his, uh, his contention, he compliments me on, the, on my writing of the, of the uh, operation and all that, but he contends that, that Pam heard this conversation with all of her modalities, sensory modalities dead uh, by the following way. Uh, the conversation was made between the, the two participants in the surgery, verbally, in the air. Now, hearing is conducted both air-conducted and bone-conducted. So what he said was the vibrations of the conversation from the female cardiovascular surgeon at the uh, foot of the operating room table, went into the operating room table, through the table, into the clamps that were holding her head steady, and then into her skull and into her brain, and she listened that way. Now, I'll tell you that that is a, that is a Disney World thing. I mean, this has never been done, never been never been even mentioned possible. So the people, I, it, this wasn't me, other people who were involved in looking at this case, they invited Worley over from Germany, said, okay, and we got the cooperation of Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix to reenact this and have Worley lie down on that table and put him in all the conditions that Pam was in and to see if he could hear the conversation the way he said. Well, of course, you know what he did. He said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it's that, that's where we're at. Okay, yeah. the people who are materialistic and they're, and they're, they, they are hard and fast. They, will, they won't argue with you. They'll just uh, a priori say, it's not possible. I don't even want to discuss it. Yeah. Dr. Sabom, just to make it clear, I understood how the sound uh, uh, got to Reynolds. Are you saying that uh, in the case of the surgeon, it went from that surgeon's vocal cords was transmitted through the operating table into the uh, bone and brain of the patient? So that's how the sound right. was transmitted? Right. Okay. Right. All right. Yeah, that does sound difficult, but yeah. 
Well, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, we we could reenact it sometime. I mean, if you're willing to do that, it, we're looking for somebody to do this. I mean, it's it, it's ridiculous. I mean, it really because it's well. What more can I say? I think I also read another. You mentioned Worley in part of the critique uh, somewhere. I read that uh, perhaps the um, whatever was on her ears was not tight enough. Okay. Well, I talked to the uh, technician who was responsible for putting those earbuds in, and he said, and I, I, this is going to be in my book, I hope, but he said that when, he, when you put those earbuds in, there's mounds of tape that go on top of it. And, and in addition, they aren't just earbuds. They're emitting 95 decibel clicks in both ears, which if Pam was even, if she was awake, that'd be intolerable for her even to tolerate. That's equivalent to listening to a jackhammer work. Oh. So, I mean, air conduction was totally out. So the bone conduction is the only, only thing Worley could figure out. And then he dreamed up this idea about uh, vibrations through the operating room table. So anyway. Yeah, wow. Okay, um, Dr. Sabom, let's then move to a biblical and Christian worldview assessment of near-death experiences. A again, I've appreciated your work both as a, uh, a medical doctor, but I've, I've also admired your work because, you know, you, you, uh, you care very much about a biblical perspective being set forth. So we'd like to hear how you go about assessing this from both a biblical and a Christian worldview point of view. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, I did read, I guess you call it a blog that you'd written after. Yes. That was excellent. Oh, and I, I, I really think that actually the references you used in it are the ones I'm going to use right now. I mean, our wavelengths are on the same, same wavelength. Okay, so what does the Bible and Christianity say about the near-death experience? Uh, Christian philosopher... Christian professor of philosophy, Douglas Gruthice of Denver Seminary, offers this assess assessment in his book, Deceived by the Light. Quote, the NDE does give us a glimpse of vast and varying spiritual dimensions, but it is not a realm that is easily navigated or readily fathomed. By virtue of our, by virtue of our spiritual ignorance and moral limitations, the spiritual environments encountered in the NDE may seduce instead of illuminate, period. Very important. This realm is not the final state of the soul, but an intermediary state of detachment of the body and engagement with an immaterial but not wholly benign spiritual reality, end quote. So we'll get back to that in a minute, but I just needed to read that to start this off. But what then is the soul? I now turn to leading Christian philosopher, J.P. Moreland, who elo eloquently argues in his book, The Soul, that the human person, quote, has both a brain that is a physical thing with physical properties and a mind or soul that is a mental substance and has mental properties. This concept is known as substance dualism. 
the soul, Moreland posits, contains sensory faculties such as sight, hearing, and touch, a will with the ability to choose, emotional faculties of fear, love, etc., mental faculties with thoughts and beliefs, and a spiritual faculty through which the person relates, relates to God. And I apologize for all the detail, but I don't know how, how other to do it. <laughs> Consider now with that description of the soul, uh, this autoscopic NDE during which the person witnessed his own cardioversion from the ceiling in a calm and relaxed manner. Quote, this is the patient. I watched a man take the paddles and rub them. And I was thinking, what is he going to do? When the shock went through my body, it jumped and lurched, and I was thinking, they are going to hurt me, but I didn't feel a thing, period, end of story. Now, to me, that two or three sentence in the description follows very closely the, the qualities of the soul that JP wrote about uh, in his book, The Soul. As, a, as can be seen, many of Moreland's soul-like faculties are evident in this brief NDE. Moreover, transcendental NDEs routinely highlight an abundance of soul-like feelings of love, peace, and nearness to a God. As a result, Moreland, along with Gruthice and Gary Habermas, who's a good friend of mine, who is also a emeritus chairman of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University. They have all gone on record as identifying the NDE as a manifestation of the human soul. I wondered, however, can the soul depart from the body prior to final biological death? Recall now, the near-death experience is not an after-death experience, but a before-death experience. So if you're saying that the near-death experience is a manifestation of the soul departing from the physical body, you're saying that's happening before final physical death. That kind of threw me for, for, for a loop. However, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul described an experience that some believe may have occurred during his apparent death at Lystra as a result of stoning, Acts 14, 19. Paul said he did not know whether he was, quote, in the body or apart from the body, God knows, end quote. During this experience, he repeated this twice for emphasis. During this experience, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. Paul had difficulty understanding what happened. Such difficult has been shared by NDEers. One cardiac arrest survivor, survivor explained it this way, quote, as God is my witness, I was out of my body and up by the corner of the ceiling of the hospital room, looking down on the situation. I was trying to figure out how I could do that, be up there and down there at the same time. I thought to myself, now this is strange, end quote. According to Gruthis and several other Bible scholars over the past century, and that's four or five different scholars, 
by quote by by allowing that he Paul might have been out of the body at the time Paul does grant the possibility of the soul leaving the body to be with God prior to irreversible biological death in quote so it's not that Paul says it happened that way but it says that Paul is allowing the possibility of it happening happening which then opens up the near death experience and that the, the the quote that I just read you of the man that said, now this is strange, how could this happen? It, the, the, the Bible is consistent with, but not proof of, the soul leaving the body prior to final physical death. According to theologian R.C. Sproul, quote, at death consciousness shifts and the soul departs from a physical in-the-body location to a spiritual out-of-body realm with no interruption. But does this shift take place instantly or in a dying process as suggested by Gruthis with, quote, an intermediary state of detachment of the body, end quote, prior to the final state of the soul? And that, Ken, is what you brought up earlier. Scientifically, death occurs as a process and not a single moment in time. The Bible affirms this process. Rachel's death as she gave birth to Benjamin occurred, quote, as her soul departed, end quote, Genesis 35, 18, not when it departed. According to Old Testament scholar Herman Gunkel, the valley of the shadow of death is the place through which the ancient Hebrews supposed the soul had to pass on the way to the underworld, which is the abode of the dead. The Bible distinguishes between this shadow of death and death itself, suggesting two different realms. Quote, have the gates of death been opened unto you, uh, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Job, uh, Job, Job 38.17. Could the shadow of death be the gray area between life and death in which an NDE occurs? a realm whose doors can be seen and whose valley and land can be walked through, but from which return is possible. Death as a process is also uh, suggested in Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and 7 with the warning, quote, remember him before the silver cord is severed, the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, this is very figurative language, obviously, but it implies that each part of the body has been, been identified by different uh, theologians. The golden bowl, the pitcher, and the wheel have all been parts of the body. In other words, this is consistent with, again, death being a process and not a single moment in time. But is there biblical evidence to suggest that the NDE does not occur after final physical death as claimed by some? And I have to be frank here. The whole genre of heaven tourism books, which, quote, no doubt already constitute the single most Financially lucrative nonfiction category in the history of evangelical publishing, end quote, 
is based on the premise of literal trips to the afterlife. For instance, ordained Baptist minister Donald Piper in his 2004 blockbuster 90 Minutes in Heaven, who began, began this book genre, he started the book genre off with, with 90 Minutes in Heaven. He insists in the opening sentence of his fourth follow-up book, quote, I didn't have a near-death experience. On January 18th, 1989, I died, literally in italics. italics. That's important for me to establish, period, end quote. That contradicts everything I've said or read about in the, in the uh, uh, Bible verses above and below here. The Bible states, however, quote, man is destined to die once, end quote, Hebrews 9.27. Death has been described, quote, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die, 2 Samuel 14.14. 14. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus taught that the dead do not report back to the living, Luke 16, 26, 31. Seven persons were raised from the dead, however, during thousands of years of biblical history. These were unique situations in which God acted for particular reasons at strategic points in history. Such reanimations are hardly commonplace today. Most importantly, None of these seven people are is said to have returned with a report of the afterlife. So I conclude that the I conclude both from the scientific and biblical evidence that the near-death experience uh, strongly points to being a near-death event and not after-death excursion to heaven or hell. Hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in light of that, uh, and again, I thank you for that very careful, exegetical, and um, biblical point of view. How confident are you then of saying that near-death experiences provide some genuine evidence of life after death? Good question. Uh, what I... I think what I said at the end of that movie after death was that the near-death experience suggests the possibility of life after death. The and I, and they did they cut it off at that point. But what I was what I was trying to get over is the fact that if this is a spiritual experience and the soul actually goes into this spiritual world then that suggests that this experience could continue on after permanent biological death. But it doesn't show that. It just suggests the possibility thereof, but there's certainly no proof. Yeah. Uh, I have another question, uh, Dr. Sabon. Early on in the podcast, you mentioned some of the uh, effects of NDEs. I wonder if you might... Uh, reiterate if I if I missed it, um, how people's lives have been affected and what that might say about worldview implications of NDEs. Okay. Well, as far as worldview indications are concerned, what I am concerned about is are the seekers, the people who come to these experiences saying, I don't know if I've already said this or not, 
uh, but they they come and say, well, Christianity said only Christians go to heaven and non-Christians go elsewhere to hell. And these experiences are mostly all pleasant experiences. So I see this film and it's kind of left open-ended as far as whether these are, well, the title after death says they're after death, although I've said near death many times during the show, uh, which I pointed out to the producer and he said, we're just going to leave that alone. But anyway, I'm, I am worried about, and I've seen this often, of people putting life after life or similar books at their bedside while they're dying so they can turn to the book and read it and get comfort from the fact that they had maybe this near-death experience or knew of people who had this near-death experience that were that was very positive, very calm, peaceful, etc. And they say they're in heaven. And then we have a ordained Baptist preacher saying he died and had this had this same experience. And he he went to heaven and saw heaven and and the, the goal path up to the throne of God and everything else. But my experience is similar to his experience. So and, and he's a Christian and I'm not. So what's the big deal here? Why do I need Christ? I mean, it it undermines the Christian gospel message. And it also encourages very plainly a universalist, or as you said earlier, a new age view of death and dying. Uh, as we get close to the end of this interview, Dr. Sabob, I, I wonder if you have any reflections about the film After Death. You were interviewed as a part of it, but there were there were many uh, medical experts, and obviously there were people who claimed to have had experiences. What did you think of the film? Did, did, what, do you think it was a, a honest and positive film? Do you have any concerns? Well, the concern I have is what I just mentioned, but yeah. also the positive part of it is, I thought, in spite of the concern I voiced, uh, I thought it was very well done. I thought that the the cinematography was outstanding. I thought the flow of the film was excellent. And I actually, I talked to my son, who is a real born-again Christian, believe me, and he take, took his uh, my grandkids there to see it, and they, they loved it. And uh, what he said was, and how he loved it, he says that it makes people think. What, what it does, it raises the question for further discussion about, you know, these people dying and where are they going and what's going on here. And so it, it sort of brings up the question. The problem is the question's not answered. The destination of these people is not answered. And the other thing, and I, I think it's obvious, I, I consider these near-death, not after-death experiences. So I think that the, the movie is misnamed, but that's neither here nor there. It does leave the impression, however, that the universalist way of looking at things is that we do have a loving God. He is almighty powerful. And so I had this experience 
and I believe it was life after death. And what am I do? What am I going to do about it or with it? Uh, am I going to change my life? Why? Because I got the pleasant experience and I'm still living the way I am. So it's the, and the other thing about this, and I've, I've really become impressed with this too. There's a lot of satanic deception in this. If there really is. And I don't know the hearts and minds of everybody who sees this show, but I do know that Satan is out there and he's alive and, and unwell or whatever. He's very active and it's deceptive, I think. But again, I have, I have come up in this field with people who do not share my Christian beliefs, believe me. And I'm very sensitive to portraying this subject, the near-death experience, in a way that would tend to encourage them further or others others to go that way. And you mentioned some of the other other people there who were co-founders with me of, of IONS, and uh, they're good friends of mine. These people are good friends of mine. We're just worlds apart on a worldview. Yeah. Joe, any last questions? Uh, no, I appreciate uh, your thoughts, Dr. Sabom. This has been fascinating, and I appreciate your coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Dr. Sabom, I've read your two previous books, so you are working on a third book. Do you have yes. a... Yeah, I, I, I've become interested in... Uh, and this may sound off base, but since we have a few minutes, uh, the subliminal mind. And uh, you had mentioned actually in that blog as one of the references, in one of the references, an archetype. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you know, do you, do you know which archetype you were referring to? Oh, boy. Um, I, I don't mean I think... to put you on the spot. The, the reason I ask is, and this, this sounds crazy, but uh, there's a lot of serious scientific work done under the guise of parapsychology. It's not so much their method, it's their interpretation, but their method has come up with some real solid work on what the subliminal mind is and the effect of that on our conscious mind. And with... J.P. Moreland saying that one of the faculties of the soul is, a, uh, is the spirit which communicates with God. There's a connection here. Where is the soul vis-a-vis -vis the subliminal mind? It's certainly non-material. It's certainly not visible. That's almost somewhere in the subliminal realm. I'm not saying it's part of well, it's got to be in part of the person too. But anyway, the, the whole thing is, where do they connect? Where does the ex extrinsic spiritual realm interact with and connect with the physical realm? And I think it's somewhere in the subliminal mind. And anyway, that, that's what I'm interested in, in now. And since you asked. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, when your book comes out, we'd love to interview you about that. Uh, again, I have found your work to be very careful in a area in which, as you mentioned, there are people who embellish things and um, you're a very straight 
forward shooting uh, Christian man, and we, we really appreciate it. So it's been a pleasure to talk with you again, and thank you so much for your work. Well, listen, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Uh, Dr. Sabom, as we uh, leave, I wonder if you might, we've had a lot of great information coming at us today, and uh, I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. I wonder if you could give it to us in a nutshell version, like a few sentences or a paragraph. How should someone who just listened to this podcast, what are the final thoughts that they should walk away with? Okay, I think the final thoughts would be akin to what I finished Light and Death with. This is a powerful experience, and and it has it. I have people in these books and in my studies who were Christians who had this experience, and it dramatically deepened their belief in Christianity. So, if I don't want to leave people with the idea that this is just point blank a non-Christian experience, it's it's a Calvin had a wonderful way of putting it. It's, it's like <laughs> boiling water. and all. I mean, there's no direction to it. It's non-directional. So there can be spiritual or, or satanic spiritual influence in directing people using this information. I would say that the one thing, if I had to leave people with one thing, rely on the word of God. I mean, that's where the word of God is the truth. These are interesting experiences, and I, I've actually written this in a journal of near-death studies. I believe in life after death, but I believe in life after death based upon the Word of God and not based upon my work with the near-death experience. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for that. Our guest has been Dr. Michael Sabom. His books, again, Light and Death, One Doctor's Fascinating Account of Near-Death Experiences, and another book, Recollections of Death, A Medical Investigation. And uh, since we mentioned Ken's blog on this topic, you can check that out here on the Reasons to Believe website on Ken's, Ken's blog channel, Reflections. The title of that blog is After Death, a new film about NDEs. So check that out, uh, plenty of reading material there for you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter, which is now X, at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or your question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Dr. Michael Sabon, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.